Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. My name is Rick Samprin. In the latest GMH podcast, Hamilton Health Sciences has canceled surgeries because resources were needed to care for unvaccinated patients. A federal election is too close to call. COVID-19 causing chaos in some schools. And would you drink potato milk? The Good Morning Hamilton podcast starts now. Serving up a healthy dose of news, traffic, and engaging opinion. This is Good Morning Hamilton with Rick Zamperin on 900 CHML. So my adventure this weekend is making potato milk. Joining us now on Good Morning Hamilton is Shannon Crocker. And Shannon is a registered dietitian and nutritionist. Good morning, Shannon. How are you? Good morning, Rick. I'm great. Thanks for having me on today. So we're talking about uh, potato milk. Uh, You know, we've heard of soy milk. We've heard of almond milk, even oat milk. Um, Potato milk is making some news. It's currently available in Sweden, the United Kingdom and China. But potato milk, yes, milk made from potatoes is making its way into some cafes here in Canada, from what I understand. It was developed by a food technology professor in Sweden who saw an opportunity to create sustainable milk, or I guess more sustainable milk, with potatoes because they contain high-quality protein, starch, some vitamin C. And she describes the taste as having a neutral taste with a creamy texture. So it kind of sounds good. But I don't know. Your, your thoughts on potato milk? Yeah, you know what, Rick? I think it's an interesting uh, milk alternative. I'm definitely watching it. I'll be interested to try it because I always like to try new products. I think that for people who are looking for an alternative, it, it may be an option. I think that um, depending on, and really depending on why you're drinking it, you know, think about that. Are you drinking it because you know, you're thirsty and you're looking for another alternative, then drink water. If you're looking for the nutrients from the potatoes, then you'd be better off to eat the potato because not a lot of those nutrients are going to end up in a potato milk. Interesting. So our our content producer, Liz Russell, actually made a jar of potato milk. And while the recipe was a success, she said it was, quote, disgusting. Um, So (laughs) as you say, it's better off to eat a potato as opposed to drinking one. Well, you know what, because potatoes actually are generally very nutritious. They're an excellent source of vitamin C. They're a good source of potassium. They actually have more potassium than a banana. They have, um, you know, some fiber for sure. They've got some some resistant starch when you cook them and then cool them that it can help to promote gut health. But not a lot of that nutrient uh, nutritional value is going to end up in the milk because only 6% of um the ingredients list, as you take a look at the Doug milk, for example, the potato milk, only 6% potato content. So you're not going to get a whole lot of those nutrients. And if you take a look at those products that, that come in the carton that you can purchase, they actually add flavor. So I can see why Liz maybe didn't um, like the taste. I have heard that when you make it at home, it's really difficult to get a sort of that same sort of creamy taste that you might get from somebody who works at a food science lab. <laughs> how long, uh, would, if someone's making milk at home, I'm not sure how many people do, whether it's potato milk or not, how long does it last? It usually only lasts a couple days, maybe three at the most. And what's going to happen is because you don't typically have um, a homogenizer at home, you don't maybe add an emulsifier, it's going to separate. So you need to continue to shake it when you use it. But but because it is a perishable product, it's really going to only last a few days in the fridge. Yeah, my guess is Liz is just going to shake it down the drain <laughs> at, the, <laughs> at the end of the day. Uh, yeah, it might be good for making something like mashed potatoes, you know, add it back in. 
True. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, Shannon Crocker is our guest here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Shannon is a registered dietitian and nutritionist. You can check her out on Twitter at Shan Crocker RD. Do you expect potato milk to be, uh, I don't know if big seller is overstating it, but to be somewhat popular? Well, you know what? I think all of the different milk alternatives get their little day in the sunshine, if you will. So I, I bet you once it comes on the market, people will try it out. And unless it tastes really good, I'm not sure how popular it will be. Um, the other thing with a lot of those plant-based alternatives is that they're expensive compared to cow's milk. So people might give it a try or maybe if they're out at a cafe, they might try it because that's where we'll probably still first see it um, is in, in food service and cafes like that. But But whether or not it will catch on i don't think homemade (laughs) potato milk will but you know perhaps the the cartons uh people will will give them a shot the issue is too i mean with taste if you're going to go with with a with a milk alternative i guess you know almond or soy might taste better than potato milk well you know what taste rules rick like no matter what whether people think a food is healthy for them or not it has to taste good so from what i understand the um carton because it, I haven't, it's not here I haven't tried it from what I understand the carton of potato milk that you can purchase actually does have a good flavor um, because they have added in some some flavoring they've added in some um, sweeteners they've added in sugars so it does actually have a nice creamy taste um, so um, and I think that's the number one reason why people will you know they'll give a try some of the plant-based alternatives but it you know if the taste isn't there they're not going to stick with it. Agreed. Uh, regarding uh, food alternatives, has the plant-based diet craze uh, peaked or is there still more to come? I think there's still more to come. I think, you know, generally people are interested. Some people have bought right in. Other people just are on the fringe and starting to to get a bit of a taste for it. I think people are looking for alternatives. They're looking for ways, especially after COVID, I think more than ever it's driven people to look for ways to try to eat to boost their health. And so I think people are going to be looking for all sorts of alternatives and plant-based for a lot of people has a health halo attached to it. And so I I think people will give some of those products a try. Having said that, you know, I don't think we're going to be losing our, our milk and animal products anytime soon. People definitely are still enjoying those products. You can find her on Twitter at Shan Crocker RD. Shannon Crocker, thanks for the time today. Thanks so much, Rick. Take care. I'm envisioning uh Three people going out and buying potato milk right now. (laughs) I understand the taste is a huge factor. And of course, if something doesn't taste good, you're probably not going to consume it on a regular basis. Unless it's like medicine and you know it's going to help you. Like if you got a a bad cough and you go the Buckley's route, uh, you're like, all right, you know, I'm going to stomach this because I know it's going to help me. But potato milk? Mm, Probably not on that list. And it looks disgusting. I mean... Food and drinks, stuff that we're putting in our body has to look, has to be appealing, has to have that uh, visual, uh, you know, give you those sensations that, all right, this is going to taste good. This looks good, therefore it's going to taste good. And potato milk, as uh, a producer, Liz Russell, describes uh, in the video that she shared with uh, producer uh, Alicia Vieira and myself, uh, she describes it as looking like ranch dressing. So imagine drinking ranch dressing. Alicia, that does not sound at all appealing. <laughs> you can see my face. No, it doesn't look good. You're not no, you're not into ugh. the the ranch dressing beverage either. Uh, so there you go. It, it it is apparently the most sustainable form of milk because potatoes, as you heard in the interview, does not require a lot of water. 
Uh, but in the same sense, I don't think it's going to be a big hit with consumers. I'm just going to stick with my regular 2%, and I'm good. And whether it's one, I can mix it in with 1%, throw in some 3.25 homogenized once in a while, <laughs> and that's about it. Uh, potato milk will not be on my uh, shopping list, but that's okay. This is Good Morning Hamilton with Rick Zamperin on 900 CHML. Fourth wave, as we know, is uh, currently in effect in Hamilton, and it's hitting Hamilton uh, quite hard, especially in the hospital system, because unvaccinated individuals are being sent to hospital and obviously unnecessary. If they were vaccinated, they probably, probably would not be in a hospital setting. Hamilton Health Sciences says it has recently had to cancel surgeries because resources were needed to care for these unvaccinated patients. Again, individuals who did not need to be in the hospital. Physicians and other healthcare workers certainly frustrated by all this. Dr. Craig Ainsworth is the director of the Cardiac Care Unit at Hamilton General Hospital, and he joins us now. Dr. Ainsworth, good morning. Good morning, Rick. Number one, thank you for doing what you do. How are you and your colleagues doing right now? Yeah, good question. It's uh, it's been a tough eighteen months for sure, um, and uh, lots of people with uh, with burnout and feeling sort of exhausted. Um, we could have we 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 projected we could we could muscle through a few waves, but the fourth wave is proving uh, proving more challenging to to actually get through. So wave four has been the hardest one for you guys. Uh, for sure, um, with every successive wave, there's been um, there's been more and more burnout, attrition of staff. Um, we, you know, the doctors have 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 worked very hard, but nurses and respiratory therapists and other allied health staff have been on the front lines for 18 months, and we just don't have the health human resources we used to have. Um, and it's not specific to Hamilton Health Sciences; it's a it's a ubiquitous problem across the province and the country where people have retired early, people have are off on medical leave just because of the, the gravity of, of working so hard. And it's got to be especially frustrating to see so many unvaccinated patients in Hamilton hospitals nine months after the vaccine first arrived in Canada. Yeah, as uh, you know, the first three waves, um, it was much easier to, to stomach because most patients who are in hospital or especially in the ICU that myself and other colleagues were looking after, didn't have the opportunity to get vaccinated because their time just wasn't up yet. And so and so now is completely different. Um, everybody in the ICU right now at Hamilton General Hospital, all nine, are all unvaccinated. And so we're in a situation now where if, if, if everyone had taken the vaccine, there would be zero patients right now in Hamilton General ICU. And those who are refusing to get vaccinated, they're basically taking a bed from someone who may need it, hence the, you know, the canceled surgeries as well. Correct. Um, it's, it's a combination of, of having those 10 extra ICU beds being taken up and, and health human resources that, are, that, that are, are lacking right now, unfortunately. Dr. Craig Innsworth is the director of the Cardiac Care Unit at Hamilton General Hospital, joining us here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Um, if the realization that you're taking a bed from someone who needs it, if that doesn't convince the unvaccinated to get vaccinated, I'm not sure what will. No, I agree. It's 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 frustrating from a healthcare provider perspective to to have to tell patients with severe non-COVID related disease that their their surgery that they've been waiting for for days or weeks or months is getting postponed. Um, you know because because other people are are taking up 
beds that they don't necessarily uh, need to be in hospital for. Added to the mix, uh, now protests outside of hospitals uh, from this, as the Prime Minister calls, anti-vax mob is just compounding, I, I guess, the frustration, right? Yeah, for sure. I, 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 you know, I can understand people's right to protest. I just, this, this one's hard to, hard to fathom, especially outside of, of hospitals where we're trying to look after people who, who have serious illness and including COVID related disease. And, and I, I'm not sure why their ire is, is centered around hospitals and healthcare providers trying to, trying to help help people at large. You mentioned some uh, within the hospital system have opted for early retirement because of the burnout factor. Are, are physicians, are, are people in the healthcare industry staying home at times because they just can't deal with the frustration or the stress or they, they're, they're simply burned out? Yeah, for sure. I've, ne- I've never, I've never, this is a marathon and I've never seen any, anything like it um, where so many people when when extra work is available or overtime work or, or, or the like that people just can't, can't stomach it any longer. It's, um, it's, I've never seen burnout like this, um, in my 10 years on staff. Do you see some light at the end of the tunnel or, or are you seeing a darker picture because we're now going into the fall months and soon into the winter months and it might get worse before it gets better? Yeah, I think that's that's the wild card in this whole uh, situation in the next few months is that return to school and and the fall months may make this fourth wave worse. Um, I think there is some cautious optimism that we're now verging on almost 80% of greater than 12-year-olds vaccinated in the province, which which is quite good. I, I just do worry that in the first three waves, we seem to be a little bit insulated locally in the Hamilton area, and most of our ICU patients were actually from outside of Hamilton, mostly in Toronto. Um, we have we have higher unvaccination rates locally than most places in the province, um, and most of our cases now, as opposed to the minority before, are actually local. So we're seeing a whole different subset of patients in our ICU, and they're almost all local now. Wow, Dr. Craig Ainsworth, really appreciate the time. Uh, thanks again for doing what you do, and uh, best of luck in the weeks and months ahead. Hopefully, there is some relief uh, at the end of this pandemic. Thanks, Rick. Dr. Craig Ainsworth, Director of the Cardiac Care Unit at Hamilton General Hospital, describing the situation in Hamilton hospitals where uh, doctors, physicians, nurses, nurse practitioners, respirologists are burned out. And it is the now unvaccinated, many locally unvaccinated, who are taking up hospital beds, using resources, stretching or at least amplifying the lack of resources and stretching people to the limit. And as you heard, some have opted for early retirement, others staying home because they're just simply burned out. And these are the people who are caring for those who are in hospital with COVID, and many of which, 90% uh, in Hamilton and really across the country, we've heard that number time and time again, unvaccinated with COVID in hospitals. It is those primarily who are choosing not to get the vaccine who are compounding this issue in our hospitals. We know they're not funded as they should be, or no, they're not staffed like they used to be, and now protesting outside of hospitals. I mean, it's just mind-boggling. This entire situation is absolutely mind-boggling. The, the people that we once referred to as heroes, or at least many of us did, and I think most of us still do, are now being attacked for a, a job of saving lives. I, I, I just can't wrap my head around that whole scenario. 
Wake up with the information you need to get the most out of your day. You're listening to Good Morning Hamilton with Rick Zamperin on 900 CHML. Joining us now to talk about the latest, greatest in the election campaign, because we're under a week to go now. Who has left their mark on this election campaign? Is it too close to call? John Malloy is a former Ontario cabinet minister, practitioner in residence in Laurier's political science department, and assistant professor of public ethics and co-director for the Center of Public Ethics at Waterloo Lutheran Seminary, and joins us now. John, good morning. Good morning. How do you fit all that on your business card? I know, I know. It sounds like, well, it's probably some truth to it that I can't find a, a real job or a permanent <laughs> job, I guess, or a full, full time, I guess I'm looking for that word. Well, hey, good luck with that. Uh, it looks like this election campaign is a dead heat. Will Trudeau or O'Toole, the, the front runners, be able to pull ahead at this stage of the race? Well, it's, and I think what you're going to see over the next week is a focus on individual ridings. It's going to come down to the way the votes split. Uh, you know, and there's a million and one theories. Uh, in Quebec, for example, they're saying if uh, there's a bit of a conservative surge, that could help the Liberals because traditional bloc voters might move to the Conservatives, split that vote, and the Liberals come up the center. And there's all sorts of scenarios in, uh, obviously, British Columbia, the Toronto area, the 905. Uh, they're the real hot spots. And Everyone's got their crystal ball out saying, how is the vote going to split? So I think the next week you're going to see leaders in key ridings trying to uh, move the vote one way or another. But I'm in the, fully in the camp of it's too close to call. So if you're looking into your somewhat murky crystal ball, because I think everyone's is a little murky at this point with this campaign, where do you anticipate this election is going to be won or lost? Is it going to be Quebec? Is it going to be the GTA, B.C., or maybe even Atlantic Canada? I uh, how, can I answer yes. Yeah. <laughs> I, think it's all, I think it's all those areas. You know, the poor folks in British Columbia. I'm old enough to remember. Uh, you know, we all went to bed uh, knowing that you know this one or that one was the prime minister, and BC hadn't even finished voting yet. For once, I shouldn't say for once. The last couple of elections, BC has uh, had a big role, and I think they're going to play a big role again. Is uh, Trudeau going to step down if he doesn't get a majority, or even worse, lose to Aaron O'Toole? I think well I think they're two different questions. I think if he if he loses to Aaron O'Toole, um, you know, I think there's a tradition for someone in his uh, uh shoes that has uh, you know been there as prime minister and then lost that that you'll probably see uh, great pressure for him to step down and I think that that will undoubtedly happen. I mean, that has uh, been the tradition the last couple of times I'm thinking of, you know, for example, Paul Martin or uh, or others, but at the same time, uh, if he if he ends up with the, roughly the same number of seats or even a few less, but is still prime minister, uh, that's going to be one to watch because there will be pressure. But at the same time, he's prime minister; he wields a certain amount of power, and uh, we could see some some unfortunately see some infighting in the Liberal Party. I say unfortunately because that just distracts a government from uh, a pretty long to-do list right now, considering the pandemic and everything else that's happening. And the question is, if it is another minority liberal government, uh, I think everyone's asking themselves, how uh, how soon are we going to go back to the polls? Because I, I would guess that, you know, if you're Aaron O'Toole or even Jagmeet Singh, a non-confidence motion on whatever the matter is might be the order of the day, maybe within a year or two. Yeah, I mean, the, it's going to be interesting to, to see how close it is. If it's quite close and the consensus is that Aaron O'Toole, and it's certainly the consensus as of today, but, you know, as the old saying goes, a week's a long time in politics, the consensus that Aaron O'Toole has done well 
he increases the conservative standing. He's going to wake up on the 21st if he's leader of the opposition and want to go back at it again. The problem is the Canadian people are exhausted. They don't want another election, and so there's going to be that... Uh, that that tension because i think you you may see i mean one of the themes i think of this election is that we've had a uh, a crowd in ottawa which seems uh, quite out of uh, touch with ordinary canadians the fact that we're having an election is something that seems out of touch so it's going to be very tricky over the next year or 18 months because if it's if it's very close there's going to be that internal pressure the Conservatives will want to get back at it. Maybe even the NDP wants to get back at it. But at the same time, Canadians, the last, things are going to, the last thing they're going to want is another election. So uh, it'll be an interesting balancing act in Ottawa. We're treading in the election waters with former Ontario Cabinet Minister John Malloy here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. What is a victory for Aaron O'Toole and what is a loss for Mr. O'Toole in this election? Well, a loss for Mr. O'Toole would be uh, it's all going to come down to seats, which which I shouldn't say it's unfortunate. I'm not. I'm I'm just an observer here. Uh, you know, Andrew Scheer increased uh, uh, you know the the Conservative vote and was seen as a failure. I think he's going to have to uh, substantially increase the, the number of seats. Uh, I think he's already proven himself as a, as a good campaigner and someone who's. Uh, done well. Obviously, you know, if he gets a minority government, I, I think a conservative majority may be beyond his re- reach. But if he got a conservative minority, that's obviously a huge win. But I think if he uh, can reduce, see some of the seats of Mr. Trudeau r- reduce, but at the same time, increase uh, his number of seats, see, be able to position himself by the 20th as someone who's responsible, a fresh new face that that people generally like. I, I, I think he's going to be given the green light to go into the next election. There'll be no problem there. I don't think it'll be an Andrew Scheer situation. If uh, the, you know the votes split in a weird way and the Liberals actually increase their number of seats or even, you know, who knows, get a majority, well then, uh, you know, Andrew Scheer's going to, excuse me, Aaron O'Toole's going to have a lot <laughs> to answer for. We got uh, about 30 seconds. Same question for, for Jagmeet Singh. I, I'm sure he's safe. I mean, he's been around a little bit longer than O'Toole, but what would be, uh, you know, a, a stake of claim for victory for him? Obviously, he's going to finish third, but what uh, what is he hoping to see? Uh, I mean, two things. I know we only have 30 seconds. One is increase the number of seats, but two, the influence. If if it is a minority situation and he gets to call the shots, particularly if it's uh, not as stable a minority as we see right now with the Trudeau government, so that it's really quite wobbly and, and he's the one who gets to call the shots, that'll be seen as a, as a victory for him. John, appreciate the time. Thanks a lot. Enjoy the rest of the campaign. Thank you. John Malloy, former Ontario Cabinet Minister, co-director for the Centre of Public Ethics at Waterloo Lutheran Seminary, chatting election talk with us. And, of course, advance polls ending yesterday. The push now to get people to the polls on Election Day. Many are expecting a historically low voter turnout, so we shall see which party uh, that is going to help and which uh, which uh, party is going to be hurt by that low voter turnout, at least the expected low voter turnout. How about some news and opinion to go with your coffee? This is Good Morning Hamilton with Rick Zamperin on 900 CHML. There are schools across Canada that have been forced to close up shop because there are COVID-19 outbreaks within their walls. So that's quite concerning. We haven't seen anything in this area, but there are other parts of the country that uh, their outbreaks are just in schools now and uh, school officials are playing it safe and saying, all right, let's uh, go back to remote learning until these outbreaks are declared 
over. Here to shed some light on this is Ryan Ingram, biostatistician, and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Ryan, how are you? Not bad yourself. I'm okay. Are, are you worried about this latest development in schools? Should we be worried? Yeah, I think we should. I think we're seeing, you know, um, like case counts now that are just absolutely off the charts. Um, you know, it's, it's, you know, we're seeing numbers now in schools that we weren't seeing until the third and fourth week of schools last year. Wow. And the worrisome thing is, uh, you know, the, the, <laughs> the colder months are coming and we're going to be all huddled indoors for a lot longer and a lot more often. And that's exactly it. And I think as well, the, the cases that we're seeing now are actually, you know, mostly cases that were brought into the school. Mind you, we're still seeing schools that have multiple cases, but many were brought into the schools. Now, I've seen photos of things that are going on at schools right now where we're seeing full cafeterias. We're seeing, you know, entire schools go out for recess at the same time. We're seeing extracurricular activities going on with no masks being worn. Um, that's going like, to definitely lead to transmission of COVID-19. As schools have been shut down in eastern Ontario, uh, cases have been reported in schools in the GTA in Alberta. Um, a school isn't considered to be having an outbreak unless 10% of students are absent due to COVID-19 or respiratory illness. And there are schools in the Alberta, in the Edmonton area and, and around that area that have all declared outbreaks and were, you know, a, a week or so into the school year. Um, I, I guess at the end of the day, this vaccine for children can't come soon enough. Yeah, and I think that's exactly it. That's really our only ticket out of this is for us to be able to vaccinate those that are 5 through 11. And we knew once September came, we weren't going to have that approved. And that's why it was super important to start this September with safe schools. And what we have instead is we're seeing schools start off considerably less safe than they were last year. Something else which we don't have this year is we don't have designated school boards. If you think back to last year, of our 70 some odd school boards, 28 of them were actually designated. So both Hamilton Public, Hamilton Catholic, there were, you know, uh, 28 school boards that were designated. What this means is that secondary students only attended mornings only every other day. And the main reason for that was so that they didn't have to uh, combine cohorts and have a shared lunch at school. So this is going to inevitably lead to a lot of cases because even that 12 and, and like up population, we don't have a lot of them like vaccinated, not as many as we should have. You're exactly right. You know, my son's high school, for example, he's in his first class, I think it's like 11 or 8.30 to 11.30, and then uh, into another class for the second half of the quadmester, I guess, as they're calling it, and then has, you know, his fourth period is basically, or his last period is lunch. But in that transaction, going from one class to another, all, all the same students aren't going to the same class. There's a lot of interaction, which is lending to the virus spread, right? Right. And the, the issue here is, once you basically join up classes like that, especially at the high school level, you're not going to have students in the exact same classes. Then once you throw on lunch, then you have more students interacting, you throw on buses, you throw on all these, you know, like out of school activities. And really what you have is you don't have class cohorts anymore. In fact, you don't even have grade cohorts anymore. What you really have is you have a cohort of the, in, of the entire population that's out of school. We're chatting with biostatistician Ryan Imgrund here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. My name's Rick Samprin. So in saying all that, uh, is it a foregone conclusion that we'll see some school closures, whether it's in Hamilton or, or parts of Ontario? Oh, for sure. Absolutely we will. In fact, I'm shocked that we've already seen a school in, uh, in uh, like Ontario shut down. It is in inevitable at this point. Um, the guys of last night 
we were seeing 273 cases, um, school cases here in Ontario. And that's after, at most, four days of school. Most schools didn't start until Thursday or Friday of last week. Now, if we see that number 273, we didn't reach that last year until September 24th. That's how long it took to reach those many school cases. We're going to absolutely be up to probably 1,000 cases in schools at the end of this week, start of next week, and that will just inevitably lead to school shutdowns. My guess is sometime in September, um, you know, we're going to see schools shut down in the, like, doubles of digits. It's, it, it, it's uh, inevitable with how fast the case counts are going right now. Well, that's pretty scary stuff. Ryan, really appreciate the time. Thanks for this. And thanks so much. Take it easy. You too. Ryan Ingram, biostatistician, chiming in on uh, the impending, as you heard from him, impending school closures because the case rate is just uh, ballooning. And I know the province has spent a lot of money in terms of improving the air filtration systems in schools, and, and that is great. But at the end of the day, when you have students in class going from class to class in a high school setting at least, not every high school student, not every high school teacher is vaccinated. And so you're going to get that crisscrossing and that mixing and matching. And, uh, hey, it only takes one person to spread it to another. And then it's mushroom clouds from there. Really scary situation. Serving up a healthy dose of news, traffic, and engaging opinion. This is Good Morning Hamilton with Rick Zamperin on 900 CHML. Protesters denouncing health measures and the province's soon-to-be-enacted proof of vaccination system uh, gathered outside numerous hospitals across Canada, including here in Ontario, yesterday afternoon. You probably saw a lot of the video, probably watched the news reports on Global News or listened to them here on 900 CHML. The good news is that police say there were no serious disruptions to services or reports of any patients or staff being blocked from accessing those hospitals, so that's great. The bad news is these protests show no signs of stopping. The Registered Nurses Association of Ontario and the Ontario Medical Association, as well as a boatload of politicians, strongly condemning anti-vaccine protests outside these hospitals. And uh, many are also calling for designated safe zones around healthcare facilities to protect staff and patients from going in and out of uh, the hospital setting. Uh, Dr. Doris Grinspun is the CEO of the Registered Nurses Association of Ontario and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Dr. Grinspun, good morning. Good morning. I'm delighted with your new program. Thank you very much, and thanks for listening and tuning in and being a part of it. Uh, how do you feel everything was handled yesterday? Well, things were handled a lot better, uh, partially because you probably heard that there were threats of bringing arms. I think you heard about that. So the police was well alerted to that. So things are escalating, though. And as you said, there is no signs that this will go away because, Rick, I don't think this is only related to vaccine passports. You may remember one of the organizers who should continue to be nameless, and we're asking to the media not to name the group because it's an offense on the nursing profession, and the person is being investigated. But uh, this individual started when they were uh, legal, ask public health lockdowns in this province and defy the lockdowns. So went on a rally with lockdowns, then was masks, now it's the passports. This is many, I mean, most people come to this because they are frustrated. They want an end to the pandemic and they take the frustration in some of the measures that have been taken in public health. But there is a small portion of this group that 
simply use it as a means of organizing much more extreme agendas, and that's what we are so concerned. So we are saying not in our hospitals, not in our schools, because in Montreal already was one outside of a school, and just picture children, how terrified they will be to see a protest outside of their school. Yeah, it's, it's really mind-boggling and uncalled for to target schools and to target hospitals with these types of anti-restrictions, anti-mask, anti-vaccine protests, because the laws aren't made within the hospitals and the school system. It's at Queen's Park. It's at Parliament Hill. Yep, or go to City Hall. If you don't have, you know, Queen's Park and Parliament Hill there, go to City Hall, uh, but, you know, to, to any government representative uh, offices outside, right? But they don't belong in hospitals while things were not blocked. Patients did express some that they canceled their appointments because they were concerned, others that this added stress to them. And also, Rick, just picture healthcare workers. They go day in and day out for 18 months with no end on site to take care of people to do what our job is, which is to practice based on evidence and to practice to the best of our ability. And on top of that, to need to see this type of, uh, you know, protest outside. Uh, there is a place for democracy, absolutely, but it's not in, in, in front of our hospitals or blocking doors on our hospitals or schools. That's not the place for it. Our guest this morning on Good Morning Hamilton is Dr. Doris Grinspun, CEO of the Registered Nurses Association of Ontario. Uh, we heard from the University Health Network, which runs Toronto General Hospital and, and other facilities in Toronto, and saying that the protests are demoralizing for healthcare staff who've taken you know, uh, uh, risks caring for patients with COVID-19. How are hospital workers, how are your members uh, dealing with these protests? How are they feeling? Uh, horrible. I mean, yesterday I met with a group of over 100 uh, registered nurses and nurse practitioners and some students that are looking forward to join the profession. And first of all, they thank immensely the media for not naming this group, and we are all insisting on that and also for helping us push the safe zones. I have been asking for over a week uh, since uh, two weekends ago, and I spoke with the Premier yesterday, and I I believe the Premier will do something, but the something needs to happen now. We are very pleased that uh, Justin Trudeau made his view known yesterday that he will use the criminal code to... Uh, add to it the issue of protection of healthcare workers, but we can't wait. We cannot wait even till September 20. This needs to happen now. And who knows? Uh, we need to hear from Mr. O'Toole. We need to hear from all of them, quite frankly, because as you know, some of the protesters have made it very well known that this is also linked to political parties, to the PPC. They have said that. They have said that is in their materials. So this will not end when COVID ends. That's the sad piece. This is what happened in Europe. This is what happened with the rallies that ended up in Capitol building, as you saw, the disaster. These things, if you don't nip them in the bud, without nipping in the bud democracy itself, of course, uh, they escalate to violence. And to see that some were calling to bring, you know, arms, I mean, it's outrageous. It's outrageous because it's intimidating. 
it's a very scary situation, and hopefully the very least is we can see these safe zones being created so patients and healthcare workers are kept safe. Dr. Grinspun, really appreciate the time this morning. Thank you for covering this, and thank you for helping push the agenda of safe zones because patients need that, and healthcare workers need that too. You're welcome. Dr. Doris Grinspun, CEO of the Registered Nurses Association of Ontario, uh, talking about uh, yesterday's protests outside hospitals. And uh, yes, they will continue, but hopefully we can get these safe zones set up to keep everyone safe. Wake up with the information you need to get the most out of your day. You're listening to Good Morning Hamilton with Rick Zamperin on 900 CHML. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Zamprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.